We recently asked a couple hundred of you emerging biotech leaders about your go-to sources of information when you face tough professional challenges. Your top response wasn't webinars, it wasn't scientific journals, it wasn't trade shows, it wasn't even consultants. Far and away, you said you most often turn to your peers for trusted insight. Enabling a community of peers is what the Business of Biotech podcast is all about. It's also what our new Business of Biotech newsletter is all about. Peer-driven content, no strings attached, delivered to your inbox once a month. Go to bioprocessonline.com backslash B-O-B to subscribe. The Business of Biotech is produced by Bioprocess Online, part of the Life Science Connect community with support from Cytiva. Cytiva also demonstrates its commitment to the leaders of new and emerging biopharma at cytiva.com backslash emerging biotech. Check that out. Over the past 100 years, average life expectancy in the United States has increased by orders of magnitude. It was 47 years in 1900. And while it backslid a little bit at the hands of COVID, it's just shy of 77 years today. Biopharma innovators can take a large share of the credit for that. But the impact of vaccines, antibodies, and other advanced biologic therapeutics on the preservation of life has given rise to another problem for biopharma to solve, preserving the quality of life and more specifically, the cognitive quality of life in an aging population. As longevity is on the rise, so are brain and CNS indications such as frontotemporal dementia and neurodegenerative disorders, and even more rare diseases such as ALS. My guest on today's show is one of the biotech leaders committed to the cause. He's seen firsthand the impact that neurodegenerative disorders can have on even the sharpest minds. And the experience inspired him to launch a biotech startup dedicated to finding solutions. His name is Dr. Howard Berman, and he's a former big biopharma guy who's now founder and chief executive officer at startup Hoya Therapeutics Incorporated. Dr. Berman, welcome to the show. It's my pleasure to be here, and thank you for your time. It's my pleasure to have you. And as I mentioned, your professional focus on neurodegenerative disorders is rooted in a personal interest in addressing it. So I'd like to start out there, Howard, if you don't mind uh, telling us a little bit about that personal experience. Sure. Well, let me just go back to my PhD, uh, which I did at Cornell, Wild Cornell in New York City, in the big city. And I did it in neuropharmacology. So my initial education and my formative training was in the science of the brain and how drugs work to modify the brain. So that was where the genesis of my interest resided early on. And then, of course, my ex early experience in the big pharma was in, in Novartis in working in neurodegenerative diseases. And so I've always had a strong interest in neurodegenerative conditions. The personal aspects, unfortunately, started a little later. Mm -hmm. And I would say about 12 years ago, my triple board certified father, uh, he was just a brilliant man. And one day, he suddenly had this, it was an ischemic, I, we, we thought it was just a, uh, a transient uh, attack where you lose essentially your memory for a period of time very short, about an hour, but it, it comes back. But it started a cascade of events that led to what we think 
maybe it was likely vascular dementia. And that process unfolded over the about a 10-year period with slow decline. And it's a literally like peeling away cognitive function of the person, taking a little part of the person away every year. And unfortunately, you know, five, six, seven years down the line, my father wasn't the same as who he was previously. And then as you see the decline, it just becomes heart rent, heartbreaking. Mm. And that uh, experience was, uh, you know, it, it, it shakes you up as an individual and you look at it clinically and scientifically, but personally and from a, from a family and from an emotional perspective, it, it, is, uh, it really shakes your fundamental core. And funnily enough, or not funnily enough, but coincidentally, I was meeting with Dr. Stan Appel at Houston Methodist with my father. And it was there that I had the serendipitous meeting with Dr. Appel. Uh, and he led me to this opportunity that there were, in fact, drugs that he was developing to handle these ravaging diseases like dementia and Lou Gehrig's disease. So it was a my father essentially took me along the pathway and it was his condition which led me to this opportunity with Koya. Yeah. Yeah. Um and I understand that some of the some of the team there at Koya has also had some pretty personal experiences with uh, neuro disorders as well. And it makes me it makes me think about you know conversations I've had in the past with founders who have personal experiences and and uh, employees associates at biopharma companies who have personal experiences uh, with the diseases and indications that they aim to treat. Um, and and it it would I guess this is I'm projecting here, but if, if I were in that role. I would imagine that there'd be a sense of uh, constant, maybe frustration or or an eager right desire to move faster than the system enables to affect change. Uh, it takes a long, long time to create a marketable therapeutic. We all know that. Um, is it hard as, as, as the leader there, one, as a leader who's had a personal experience with conditions related to those you seek to treat, and uh, a leader of others in the company who have also had personal experiences uh, with, with these conditions. Is it difficult to meter that ambition as the leader at Koya to, you know, meter and manage expectations and 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 uh, and how quickly you can move to affect change? It's difficult, but we have a solution for that. Let me just go back one step and talk about Doc, uh, Daniel Barvin, who's on my team, who who was the first employee of Koya. And I identified him because he was working at the IMALS Foundation, and he had an MBA from Rice. He was an excellent candidate to join the company. He has his father passed away from a, a frontotemporal dementia. His aunt passed away from ALS, and he had other family members with uh, with ALS. Mm-hmm. And they tested those patients, those those individuals, and they had C9 or 72 mutations. Now, for those of you who don't know what that is. It's a genetic mutation which occurs in a subpopulation of ALS and frontotemporal dementia patients, about 5 to 10% of patients, and it gives the individual a very high chance that they're going to get the disease, 90 95% chance, one of those disorders. That's a terrifying statistic. Yeah. So they asked him, do you want to take, do you want to take this genetic mutation test? because then you're going to have the knowledge, but there's nothing to do about it, unfortunately. And he took it 
And his brother took the test and guess what? They were positive. So he, he is living now with the knowledge that he is going to get one of these disorders. So there is a personal mission and ambition to develop treatments, not many, many years down the line, but treatments now for these disorders. And the most amazing thing is that while we were developing a very expensive cell therapy, which focused on a type of cell called the regulatory T cell, the immune system, to prop it up, we also were developing biologics at the same time, which were cheaper and simpler. And now we have these biologics, which are well-characterized biologics, and we think we can leapfrog the, the, the process to take these much faster to larger number of patients and hopefully to an approval in a, in a time period that normally you would never see in drug development. That's the most exciting thing about Koya is we think we can move this process along much faster than you typically and ordinarily would. And so I think, and I believe that we are, uh, based on our early clinical data and based on what we're planning to do, not very far away from moving the needle in uh, at least to start off within ALS. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm going to ask you some questions here in a minute uh, about the science that you guys are, are building on. Uh, but I want to, I want to, I want to linger for just another minute here around the the founding of the company and and, and how that kind of came to pass. Um, and, and I've had uh, plenty of discussions uh, with execs who have had, as I said, some personal connection to the indications that they're they're, they're uh, seeking to address. Um, and I've also had plenty of conversations with VCs and, and and investors who have said, you know, when there's a personal connection between the founding members, the CEO. Uh, and and the indication that can be at times a red flag, right? It can be like a, an emotional investment is sometimes a difficult thing to to deal with as a as a businessman. Tell me a little bit about how you manage that, Howard. Like how your, you know, obviously your dad's experience contributed to your your decision to launch a biotech. But um, how have you personally sort of dealt with uh, w- with the balance between running a business and that that personal ambition? For sure. Well, it's not just Howard Berman. It's a team of individuals who have many, many years of experience in drug development in on the financial side of business who and the board of directors and other advisors who there are constant checks and balances into the process to make sure that we're on the right track. That's first and foremost. So it's not me alone who's making the decisions, but I'm very clear eyed. And there are individuals who have put money into the company. And by the way, we've all put money into the company, every single board member, every single person on the C-suite, our scientific advisors, they've all trusted the company with their hard-earned money. So we have a fiduciary responsibility to make sure that we're going to be bringing these drugs to market in the right way in concert with the FDA. Uh, we don't uh, we don't let personal ambitions or personal thoughts and emo- emotions affect or impact what we do. We run this as a business, like a profession, like professionals, and we know and understand that that's the only way that you can get a drug from A to B and ensure that it reaches the patients the quickest. 
So I understand your question. I do agree that in some instances, it could impact or affect the way that you run a business because you have so much emotions vested in it. But I, it's not like I'm operating, I'm a physician operating on my son who has a disease. This is something where we are systematic, we use the scientific method, and we use business principles to do this properly. Uh, but I do think that the, the personal stake is a, is a positive. I don't think it's a negative. I think it's something that pushes us forward and gives us mission and invests us in the step of our endeavor. I think it should look be looked at as a strength as opposed to a weakness. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So uh, the the investment uh, that the, the team, the C-suite, your investors uh, are, are willing to put uh, into, into the company, you're, you're investing in, in in a solution that I want to get, uh, I want to dig into a little bit right now. I want to dig into the science that Corey is building on. Um, so where did it come from? How, where, where Where's the science uh, rooted and how did, how did you come to acquire it? So I licensed, I identified after I met with Dr. Appel through my father's situation we licensed in the platform from Houston Methodist, and it was based and originated from our relationship with this big hospital system called Houston Methodist in Houston. They are uh, one of the world's leading uh, hospitals, and they have inc- developed incredible technology platforms. What the work surrounds is from Dr. Stan Appel, who is, th- many consider him the father of modern ALS. He is one of the world's leading experts in ALS and neurodegeneration. And he has been working on this field of medicine called regulatory T-cell biology, which is enhancing the Treg, we call it short for short Treg, and that is to stop and slow inflammation. The Tregs are the most important cell in the body that controls inflammation. And when they're not working properly, inflammation is heightened, and that is a very detrimental thing in, as we've discovered, in neurodegenerative diseases. And I'll tell you why. Typically, when someone has Alzheimer's or the early stages of Alzheimer's or ALS or Parkinson's, the neurons are starting to get into trouble. The proteins are misfolding. The cells aren't working properly. The neurons have defects. There are uh, the waste disposal system of the cell causes aggregation of proteins. And what happens is the immune system recognizes that there's a problem at the neuron. So the neuron says, please help me out. So the immune system sends all these cells to the, to the site of the damage. And initially, it's very helpful and it clears out some of those proteins and it gets the neurons working a little bit better. So the sick neurons, you know, they're not so sick anymore. The mm-hmm. problem is it doesn't really do the trick. And this enhanced and this this uh, sustained inflammation essentially ultimately results in the neurons becoming overwhelmed and the immune system ultimately takes out the neurons. So the neurons eventually die because they cannot be fully repaired. So it's the immune system that's now recognized as the most critical mediator of the death of the neurons. And it's all caused from the original insult from that neurodegenerative condition, whatever caused the the Alzheimer's or whatever caused the ALS, and no one truly knows how these diseases arise. So by removing that inflammatory cascade or limiting it or mitigating it, 
and doing it in multiple ways uh, by enhancing the regulatory T cell, which is all screwed up in ALS, for instance, and in Alzheimer's, mm -hmm. and by propping it up and by also block blocking other aspects of the immune system that are causing heightened inflammation, we're able to either slow or stop the disease progression. And that's our hypothesis. And so what Dr. Appel and what we're working on are biologics now that when you administer them like a simple insulin injection subcutaneously, you can prop up the Tregs in the bloodstream. You can reduce the bad pro-inflammatory cells. We call them the macrophages, which are very detrimental to uh, the Tregs and neurons in the, in the body. And if you do them at the same time in a combination therapy, much like combination therapy in cancer and in HIV and AIDS, you can potentially slow or stop the disease. And we've run a small study, which we wanted to make sure that we had a proof of concept with respect to ALS. And uh, the results shocked us. Uh, frankly, we, we showed the Tregs, these good guy inflammatory cells were enhanced and the bad guys were reduced. And uh, we were able to stop progression in those patients. So we, we're very excited about it. We think this is the, the approach, the type of approach that can truly make a difference in not just ALS, but in other neurodegenerative diseases. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, what, what translational challenges did you have to overcome or, or perhaps do you uh, continue to face, still face in, in terms of taking the science and making it applicable to, you know, what, what, as I, as I noted, is an increasingly large patient population? Well, ALS is a, there's some good and some bad. It's a terrible disease. That's the bad. And the patients decline very rapidly and the patients, Patients are in need of treatment as soon as possible. So any delays is a detriment to the patients and their families. But the positive is that because the patients decline over six months, it gives you a reasonable amount of time, short time, to see if the drug is making a, a difference. And that is why it's a very good disease condition to test drugs in, and it's much cheaper than a, another disease condition where you have to wait much longer to see a significance. So from a logistical perspective, I think we're set up now to run a large, larger, well-controlled trial in a shortened period of time to be able to show a significant difference between the, the active arm, which is our therapy, and a placebo. The logistical aspects that are frustrating, but I understand it, is unlike in oncology, where sometimes the FDA will allow you to use real-world evidence and natural history, so you don't need a placebo, and because these patients are so sick, uh, in these neurodegenerative conditions, like in ALS, they will not permit you to use a arm that's natural-world history because they re still require placebo, which means that patients who are being treated are on placebo are not getting active drug. They're getting the standard of care, which is maybe only s slightly slows progression, but they're not getting your therapy. So that's a frustration, but it's an understandable situation. 
<clears throat> what's can you can you kind of walk us through a, a little bit of what the the manufacturing paradigm looks like there at Koya? Like what what, what does it take to to produce the drug that you'll be uh, presenting clinically? Sure. So our drug is comprised of two different proteins. The first one is a low dose interleukin two, which is a cytokine protein which is has been designed and constructed to be set into a pre-filled syringe in a, an aqueous or in a liquid solution. So it's simple. You just manuf- it's manufactured and then it's put into a refrigerator because it's stable. And then the caregiver can simply inject the patient like an insulin injection at home. So that makes it a very good uh, from a quality attribute as a product. Mm-hmm. The manufacturing is straightforward. It's been manufactured in the market that it's being that it was approved for, which was overseas, and now we're just bringing it locally into the United States through the the proper channels. So the the CMC, which is the ma- the manufacturing process, is well characterized, and it's well known, and the costs are very good for us from a from a cost of goods perspective. And then on the other side, we have another protein, which is the other component of the the, the therapy, which is CTLA-4 IG, which is the biosimilar version, proposed biosimilar version of Abetacept. You may know it as Orencia, which was manufactured, is manufactured by Bristol-Myers Squibb. This is produced by Dr. Reddy's in India, mm-hmm. and they've already scaled this up, and it's in clinical trials in Europe already. So they, Dr. Reddy's is one of the world's leading experts in uh, in developing these sorts of biosimilars, and their ma- manufacturing in CMC is second to none. So the product is develop is so it's a two biologic combination from two well known and characterized manufacturing processes, and then the final product would be a kit combination kit where the two uh, proteins or the two therapies would go into a kit and it would be administered. Uh, by the individual. Uh, the abetacept biosimilar would probably be administered because it's twice a month by a by the um, physician at in the site of the when the patient goes in to visit, but it's but it's essentially a subcutaneous injection as well. Uh, but so it makes it very simple for the patients and their families. And the manufacturing is very well characterized. And when you compare it to other modalities like cell therapy, it you can't. You I have to tell you, it's considerably cheaper. It's scalable. As manufacturers look to automate, scale, and reduce risk in cell therapy process development, there are more options than ever before. Tune in each week to learn about cell processing, manufacturing platforms, and more. The pod is brought to you in collaboration with Cytiva a global provider of technologies and services that advance and accelerate the development, manufacture, and delivery of therapeutics, including cell therapies. Check out their resources at cytiva.com backslash emerging biotech. That's C-Y-T-I-V-A dot com backslash emerging biotech. I want to ask you, like in in comparison to sort of, I guess, compare and contrast what you're doing in this space. This is sort of a a side question as I'm thinking about all the all the work that's been going on and and controversy, frankly, uh, around some of the uh, 
Alzheimer's treatments uh, that have been approved uh, of late in in recent years, and and, and uh, there there are some readouts coming down the the pike here um, that are going to be interesting in the Alzheimer's space. So tell me a little bit about sort of the competitive uh, landscape, big pharma, right? I mean, you guys are a startup, but there, there's some big pharma approaches to, uh, Alzheimer's and other neurodegenerative diseases in the same space in which you, you work. Um, tell us a little bit about how, you know, how, how you, uh, perceive, uh, those efforts and where you fit into that landscape. Sure. So many of these companies are focused, the big pharma companies have been working for a long time now on the hypothesis of beta amyloid which is a protein that misfolds, for instance, and tau protein and and other mechanisms that they think potentially are causative of the disease process. And they believe that if you can manipulate or modify those proteins, you can impact the disease condition. Uh, The problem is, is that Alzheimer's is a very complex heterogeneous disease with many different causes. and unfortunately, the, those beta amyloid and tau are just one potential mechanism in the disease pathophysiology. It's not the end all or be all. And then there are aspects, are, do those cause the disease or are they caused by the disease? No one fully understands it. And then in fact, if you look at patients who are autopsied and measure the and these are patients who have good cognitive functioning, you also find that those patients have beta amyloid. Uh, And so it doesn't necessarily mean that if you have beta amyloid, you're you're in trouble. So we, we on, on, on the other hand, believe that inflammation is a key driver of the disease pathophysiology, whatever the cause of the condition is. So it may be beta amyloid may be contributing, it may be other aspects, but the the net result of that, whatever the cause is inflammation, we think that the neurons are not firing properly and are not connecting because the synapse between the neurons are impacted by inflammation. The inflammation is preventing the microglia and other aspects of the immune system are preventing the signals from going from one neuron to another neuron. And if you can clear out that inflammation, if you can remove that inflammatory block you can enhance the signals that go back and forth between the neurons. So we think that the neurons are function are anatomically intact. This is important to note at a certain stage of the disease are anatomically intact. They're not degraded or atrophied or un- have undergone cell death, but they're functionally in they're functionally blocked. So that functional block can be removed with the appropriate immunotherapies that can remove that inflammatory burden around the synapse. That we believe is the is where the the therapies and the modalities should go. And we think that uh, in particular regulatory T cells, which is what we focus on, is a fundamental feature in these conditions, not just in ALS, but in Alzheimer's, which has it's been discovered by us, and in Parkinson's and in frontotemporal dementia. So our goal here is to ramp up the t- the T-Rex, the good guys, to remove that functional block and to do it in a safe and well-tolerated manner. And guess what? Some of these other treatments, the beta amyloid treatments that you've heard about, they have some pretty bad side effects. Uh, they they cause some they cause toxicity 
And it almost, in some instances, physicians may say it's not worth it to, to give these, these therapies. <clears throat> so we think that uh, inflammation is a critical driver, much like many years ago, people said maybe inflammation plays a role in cancer. Oh, guess what? Inf inflammatory pathways are the most critical pathways in cancer now with the, the CTLA-4 inhibitors and the PD-1 inhibitors. That's changed medicine in the landscape of medicine. We think the same process is occurring in neurodegeneration. People are recognizing it. And we think that in 10 years from now, it's going to be the gold standard. Yeah. Excellent. Um, you're a relatively new company. Koya's founded 2021-ish, 20, uh, so a few years old. Uh, you've got one clinical candidate, four that are pre to uh, preclinical to IMD enabling. Um, so you're mostly early stage. Uh, and, and I know you're a veteran. I'm going to ask you a few questions about your, your, you know, your, your experience in, in big pharma here shortly. So I know you're a veteran, but as far as, you know, as far as Koi is concerned, it's a, it's a new, new business. You're seeing some of this new and emerging bio business stuff uh, for the first time. Um, so tell me about, uh, I guess, your impression uh, of the the fundraising, the, the capital markets scene, uh, since you've you've launched Koya, uh, you know where where do you see the most activity? What do you what successes and frustrations are you experiencing in that in that realm? Well, I have to say that it's eye opening, given my previous experience in big pharma, where you had money to do and personnel to do every small little item, and you didn't have to worry from budget as much from budgetary items. Here, yeah. it's a different. Uh, completely different game. You have to be conscientious of where every penny goes and make sure that you're holding your dollars very tightly. Uh, what I can tell you is that we, in the worst biotech climate last year, in 2022, we were able to raise two rounds of financing. We were able to raise a convertible debenture in the first part of the year, and then we were able to complete an IPO. And that is a pretty remarkable feat, given that only, I believe, 12 companies, including ours in the biotech space, were able to do that successfully, and many others weren't able to do it. It shows us and it proves to us that people believe in the story and the science and the pedigree of the folks that we have on our team. And, and we still have those same investors in our company, so they're confident in our approach. Uh, what I can tell you is that five years ago, the approach to investing and how you handle your money is different than it is today because the the economic situation is is a very unique one as we as we are situated investors are looking for companies who are one at two at most clinical trials away from a real catalyst for the company that can take them from a small valuation or a lower valuation to a very high valuation and they want to see good clinical trials, robust clinical trials that are run properly in a cost conscious manner that can truly be transformative for the company. So when you look at our biologics at Koya 302, which is the combination biologics, we show this to investors and they say, aha, this is a unique approach with good intellectual property you have very strong clinical data already in ALS. You are planning a well-controlled trial with a, a double-blind placebo-controlled trial to start at the end of this year. 
And if you run that in a, in a way that is statistically sound, that can show something very quantitative and qualitative for FDA, you potentially could stand a chance that this could be a move the needle in the disease condition. And that's what invest, and in a short period of time, that's what investors want to see. And when you show this to an institutions, institutional size investors, that's when they become excited, as opposed to other companies who are either preclinical and are many years down the line from ever developing something that can be a true catalyst for the company, or even an earlier stage company that is in a disease condition where it's going to require them to spend $150 million to go through the process. Not for us. The disease condition we're, we're, we're handling, it's, it's a high unmet need with a positive regulatory climate now, with a strong patient advocacy, with less money needed to take it through the, all the way, and with uh, much fewer trials, we believe, or trial to take us to a, a potential registration. Uh, so that's why we're unique and different. And that's why I think we provide not just to inve- re- investors, but also to institutional size investors. Mm-hmm. Yeah, very good. Very good. What would you, uh, l- looking back on your your uh, financing approach o- over the last couple of years, is there anything that retrospectively you you may have done different advice that you might offer? Folks who are seeing this for the first time to you know maybe do differently or or, or better than than uh, than Koya did. That's a that's a great. Uh, <laughs> well, when I write my book one day, yeah, yeah. you know I'm I'm going to think about that and I'm going to incorporate it into probably into chapter ten or eleven because <laughs> it's a because it's a very good question that the book is still being written and yeah. it's hard to synthesize all the experiences and and teach teach a class on what to do and what not to do. But sure. I would say is this, is to align yourself early on with two types of investors. This is very important. And align yourselves with people who know what they're doing and who can provide very good counsel that's in the best interest of your company, not that self-serving. Number two is align yourself with institutional size investors who are well-respected, have pedigree and provenance in the community, people respect them. Because if people, other people see that they've invested in your company, they're more likely to, to, do, to follow on and to do it relatively quickly. Because yeah. they, they'll say they've put the time and the effort into understanding the science and the, the management and the execution ability. And that is probably one of the f- fundamental things in biotech that you want is to have that uh, that quality, the quality of your investors who are backing your organization. That's a fair response, Doctor Berman. And I, I will, uh, you know, when you write that book, I'm, I'm gonna, I'm gonna hold you to it. We're gonna revisit uh, chapter ten of that book uh, once the book is written, and maybe share some more retrospective advice. Sure. Uh, you may put you in chat. I may put you in uh, in one of the chapters. Uh, I'd like to see that. I'd like to see that. I'll, I'll help you write it. I'll be your editor. Um, as I noted from the outside of the conversation, you spent some some time in the big leagues. You were uh, you, you spent time at companies including AbbVie, Eli Lilly, Novartis, and MD Anderson. 
before you founded uh, Koya. So I want to talk a little bit about that. Your uh, your experience in those in those organizations. How how did that sort of big pharma experience uh, from you know from your early days work, working your way up through the chain prepare you for for what you're doing now? Yeah, well. It's an evolution and it's first it's understanding the minutiae, the ins and outs of drug development, understanding what it takes to interact with the FDA, what it takes to interact with uh, internal colleagues, develop rapport, uh, generate uh, the sort of data that would would allow for a drug to go from from start to finish. Also, understanding what makes a what makes a drug successful, what's a good uh, process and what's a bad process and how to say no. And there are many lessons that you learn all along the way. And then it's also being humble and learning, you know, you work in a bureaucratic environment where there's bosses above you and multiple layers. So you have to be regimented and organized. And, un- and until and unless you, you go through that process, you're not fully ready to be a CEO and you're not fully ready to understand the, the broad complexity of the types of things that you need to do as a CEO, because I can tell you where you focus on one or two things in pharma, you're on a hundred things as in a smaller biotech company. So uh, it's sort of being like the MacGyver. Remember that show MacGyver, where mm. he was able to make a, a switchblade out of, out of a, a Coke bottle. He, you have to be willing and ready and able from all the lessons that you've learned to to accomplish the multitude of tasks, which is not simple or easy. And it ranges the areas of finance to to clinical development, to regulatory, to uh, a multitude of other things that 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 I I can't even uh, list off because there's so, so many. Uh, and, And so Big Pharma has prepared me because you've learned so many lessons along the way. And so I'm very privileged to have worked at all these great companies. Yeah. Yeah. Very good. You know, uh, Dr. Berman, you're, you're aging us a little bit with the MacGyver reference. I, 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 uh, I'm right there with you, right? I mean, I grew up watching that <laughs> show, but, but for those of the, of the younger elk of, of our listeners, I would uh, encourage you to just YouTube uh, MacGyver t- TV show uh, t- to get the gist <laughs> for what Dr. Berman's talking about. There was a creative solution to every problem the man faced on every ep- every episode. That's right. Yeah. Um, you-, you mentioned earlier that uh, when we were talking about finance, you said, you know, uh, when you worked in big pharma, the, the resources were perhaps uh, more plentiful and easily accessible uh, or easier accessible than than they are uh, in, in startup bio. Um, so, so that that I guess setting that aside, like we ascertain that that's uh, you know that that's a, a constant challenge in, in startup bio is being conscious of your cash runway and your and your cash burn rate. Uh, what else is is challenging in terms of making the transition from big bio to to new and emerging? Well, it's the same analogy as flying a set flying a, a Boeing seven forty seven versus a Cessna plane mm. or driving a Ferrari as opposed to a go-kart. That's that's the analogy I would give you from running a, a, a running a small biotech company versus being a cog in the bi- big biopharma world. It's dramatically different. I mean, it, you can't even compare. And the 
you have thousands of employees that work side by side with you in big pharma. And then there are people that handle minutia in every aspect of the drug development process and the IP and the regulatory. And so it's very unique and differentiated. And here you are in a small biotech where you are essentially responsible for everything from understanding the intellectual property, working with the IP lawyers, working with the finance, doing the audits, doing the drug development, overseeing all of this in real time, putting out press releases, understanding your investor relations strategy, hiring the right individuals. And I can tell you, unless you're prepared and unless you have the ability to be flexible on the drop of a note, uh, on the drop of a of a dime, uh, it's I wouldn't recommend this for for anyone. It's not for the faint of heart. It's not for the meek. And it's for people who have a belief and a mission and are driven by a cause. And so there is no comparison whatsoever. It's just like the analogy I gave you. You you cannot go seamlessly from one to the other unless there are causative processes along, along the way that give you a much bigger picture as to what you're doing and what you're trying to accomplish. Yeah. And also the personality of the person. Look, if you're an entrepreneur and you're driven by this sort of thing, and this is something you've wanted to do your whole life, which I did, I've always wanted to be an entrepreneur, then this is something that is a dream. It's You're living in, in the dream that you've always wanted to construct for yourself. But for someone who hasn't done that, this is something you want to get out as quickly as possible. So it's a personality-driven decision, but it's also a multitude of events and experiences that uh, are not uh, are not for the faint of heart. Yeah, yeah. Now that's a that's a that's a fair assessment. I could I can certainly understand. Uh, how how old are you, Doctor Berman? Can I ask that? Is it okay to ask that? Sure. I'm 49 years old. 49. So you've, uh, you know, I mean, because it's an important uh, consideration too, is that you've prepared uh, in big pharma for 49 years old, amassed all these experiences in addition to, um, you know, as as we talked about the the personal inspiration to to do what you do, and only only after you know, well, I guess it would have been 46, 47 ish years of experience and and. Um, you know, uh, I guess growth. Did you come across the opportunity to pursue that entrepreneurial dream? You know, scratch that entrepreneurial itch because you can have the desire all day long, especially in a in in an industry like biopharma. You can have the desire forever, but if you don't have the 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 solution, right, the science that to hang that desire on and move forward with, that's a, a difficult proposition. Well, the that's very very true. I. I forgot to say and neglected to tell you that not only do you have to have all the qualities and attributes that I mentioned previously about doing this, you have to have the science and you have to have the technology and the intellectual property. And that comes not by necessarily by just your the ability to source the technology out of university, but by luck and just by by sheer happenstance to find the right platform that is going to be commercializable and it's going to be financeable. Mm -hmm. And that is like a drop. That is like a needle in a haystack to find that just so that people can understand. I 
I was at MD Anderson looking at technologies all day long, helping license them. And then in, in Big Pharma, I, I did some work in business development. And let me tell you, they see thousands of technologies and drugs that are sent on their desk every year. And do you know how many ch they choose to finance or to work on? Maybe one. Sometimes they choose zero. Mm -hmm. So there are very few technologies that are worthwhile. And most of them are what we call white noise. They, they have some academic data. They have some mouse data or in vitro data, but they're not, they don't have what it takes to bring it to uh, proof of concept and beyond. So this is a very unique opportunity that was a happenstance. It was luck, but it was just being at the right place at the right time. Yeah. Uh, so on that path, uh, now, now that we've moved uh, from happenstance and luck and being at the right place at the right time to, you know, an actual development uh, strategy uh, and, and clinical strategy, what's next on that path? What's next for Koya? So Koya is now going to be focused on Koya 302 and really putting its time, its efforts, its dollars to develop the therapy in a well-controlled study in ALS. And we're planning to do a, a, a study with enough patients that can show significance between the active arm, which is COYA-302, this combination biologic, and placebo over six months, and uh, likely with an open label extension for another six months. So if we run that trial, we, we plan to do it in a way which stratifies the patients up front and make sure that we have the right patients, right patient cohorts entering into the study, because we found that a lot of these ALS studies didn't properly stratify their patients, didn't have the right patients in, and weren't able to select for biomarkers, weren't able to select for, uh, for the, the type of disease condition that they, or the, the stage of disease that they had. So we, we feel very good about our clinical design strategy. And that's our process is we, we're gonna run this trial we think that this trial can be a very meaningful output for Koya that can give investors uh, an asymmetric opportunity uh, should the trial go according to how we think it's going to go. And so, like I said, three years ago, it was a different in, uh, financial environment, but investors like the fact that we can put our time, our efforts, and our dollars into a strategy which involves well-known manufacturing and CMC. Uh, a well a, a process which we know how to run ALS trials and a design including a double blind placebo controlled trial that can give us a meaningful output that can be a, a strong catalyst for the company. That's our focus, and that's really where we're going to be putting our efforts towards. Very good. I failed to ask you, uh, Dr. Berman. What did your, your you said your dad was triple board certified? What did he What did he practice? He was a rheumatologist, which deals in things like arthritis and lupus and mm -hmm. other autoimmune conditions like that. And he also was certified in internal medicine and endocrinology. He was born in South Africa, where I was born as well. And he moved to the United States as a physician at the age of about 40 years old. And I was, I was a kid. I was around four or five years old. Yeah. And so all of my family now, we followed in his path. My mother is a, uh, was a world-leading cancer epidemiologist, one of the top in the world. My brother is a, a MD-PhD, and he leads, an organization, he leads a company called Immunocore, 
which is uh, a public company in biotech. And he's an expert in immuno-oncology. And then my sister is a breast radiologist in Bethesda, Maryland. That's amazing. Uh, your father would be incredibly proud uh, that his that his entire family is honoring his legacy. Thank you. I'm I'm very proud to be his son, and it's uh, that, that's very meaningful that you said that. And I thank you for that. Uh, but he's really uh, he pushed us, and and I feel that we are honoring his legacy. Absolutely. Well, we will, uh, we'll be following along, Dr. Berman. It's an exciting story. It's, uh, you know, you guys working on some uh, incredibly important, uh, important um, indications. So we'll be paying attention. And in the meantime, I thank you for spending some time with me today. And, uh, you know, we'll, as, as we pay attention, we'll look at a part two down the road. Let's do a part two and then let's plan on the, the book, writing the book. The book. Yes. Uh, yeah. I'll, I'll, I'll try to weasel my way into more than just chapter 10, but we'll, we'll, <laughs> we'll stay in touch on that one too. All right. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you. So that's Koya Therapeutics founder and CEO, Dr. Howard Berman. I'm Matt Piller, and this is the Business of Biotech. We're produced by Bioprocess Online with the support of Cytiva, which demonstrates its support for new and emerging biopharma companies at cytiva.com backslash emerging biotech. If you like listening in on conversations with biopharma leaders like Howard, subscribe to the Business of Biotech podcast and sign up for our newsletter at bioprocessonline.com backslash B-O-B. Also, be sure to leave us a review and let us know how we're doing. And as always, thanks for listening. <laughs> <laughs>